Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here in the Ecosiv podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The work of the Ecosiv Institute as a whole significantly depends on the generosity of supporters and listeners like you. So if you enjoy this podcast and value the many other projects that we are engaged in, please consider making a donation at ecosiv.org slash donate. For today's episode, Ebony Bailey speaks with Jason Maurice Porter, who is a PhD candidate in history at Northwestern University and recent Fulbright Garcia Robles scholar. His dissertation focuses on Mexican environmental history and political ecology, and he teaches more broadly on environmental social justice, black geographies, and science and technology in the Americas. Ebony talks with Jason about how he became interested in researching at the intersections of race, history, and the environment, and about his recent article on how pesticides have adversely affected Black populations in the U.S. Among other topics, they also discuss the importance of studying history, especially in the context of politics and ecology, for creating a better world in the future. And now, here's Ebony and Jason. With Jason Porter. Jason is a PhD candidate at Northwestern University in Environmental History. He uses political ecology, material cultures, and black geographies to study agrochemicals and social movements in Mexico and the global tropics. His articles on pesticides, environmental history, and political ecology in North America have been published in various online journals and Mexico's principal presidential archive. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation to Ecosystem. Thank you. So Jason and I actually met in Mexico. We both study kind of intersections of food and race in Mexico and other things. Um, And Jason, I just wanted to ask you, could you tell us a little more about yourself and what made you interested in researching the intersections of race, history and the environment? Yeah, um, well, first, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Ebony. Um, because of our our shared interests. So yeah, uh, a little bit about my background. So I was born in Baltimore. My family's from Philadelphia. Um, But as a kid, I moved around quite a bit. But moving to Tucson, Arizona as a 10-year-old after moving 10 times was uh, quite influential. And I would say uh, Tucson was kind of the first of three places that really kind of shaped how I put together conversations about history, race, and the environment. So Tucson first, then Mississippi, and then Yucatan. And in Tucson, I moved there at 10 and didn't move until I was 16. I remembered seeing my first cotton fields. Uh, I I moved to Mississippi, but the first cotton fields I saw were in Tucson along the border, uh, close to these apple orchards I used to love going to. Unfortunately, after ICE was formed in 2004, when I lived down there, those apple orchards were readily raided uh, because of the the migrant workers that worked there. Um, And I had to stop going to get ice cream there. I I remember living in Tucson from 2000 to 2006, not only the formation of ICE, but the first wall going up, uh, the beginning of the drug wars. And uh, I really started to see uh, how these policies and how how these events were disproportionately affecting um, Mexican and Mexican-American people. And in southern Arizona and northern Sonora, which I was also familiar as a as a as an adolescent, and then moving to Mississippi, uh, I also saw 
uh, I saw cotton fields um, working in the Delta doing food packaging um, in college. But I also in the Delta saw uh, Mexican uh, migrant workers working a lot of the fields, the cotton fields up there, and also various vegetable fields in Mississippi. And I heard nightmarish stories about the experiences that they went through, both getting to Mississippi and then once in Mississippi. Uh, so having gone from a state that was incredibly difficult to be um, Mexican and Mexican-American, I went to a state that's historically very difficult to be Black, but also saw difficulties for the Latinx experiences as well. And to, to tie it back to Yucatan, I had the privilege of, for an assortment of different reasons, I had to stay in Mississippi for college. And uh, the small school that I went to, Millsaps College, had a bioreserve in Yucatan. Uh, the state in the, the southern peninsula of Mexico. And I had the privilege of studying ecological design and history, and most importantly, the caste war. And uh, one book that I, I kept on, I kept on really fixating on down there was a book called Bound and Twine. So again, a fiber similar to what I saw in Tucson and what I saw in Mississippi, this Hennequin fiber uh, made Yucatan the richest state in Mexico by the Mexican Revolution. But in order to make this Hennequin, it was a very plantation-style political economy that not only enslaved the Yucatecan population, the Maya population of the region, but also enslaved Yaqui and Mayo um, indigenous peoples from present-day Sonora and Sinaloa and took them to Yucatan as well. And to tie it all back together, a lot of that binder twine that was created in, in Yucatan through the railroad systems and the electrification that foreign capital brought to the peninsula, a lot of that binder twine was then sent to prisons in the United States South to then be bound by, bound by prison labor. And this, this historian who wrote this history um, it just sparked my interest when I was working for a, a company called Stop Hunger Now. Long story short, they gave me a humanitarian award for starting a food packaging program, and I, I asked for a job instead. It ended up being a problematic nonprofit, but the job took me to the University of Oklahoma to meal package, I don't know, a couple thousand meals with a couple thousand students. And while I was there, I asked, I sent an email to a professor who had written this book, Bound in Twine. And we sat down while I was there, just really just talk about the book. I'd planned to go back down to Yucatan and do some work with friends. And uh, after the conversation, he offered me a full ride to start a PhD program there. And that's how I slipped and fell into uh, studying the Mexican environment as it related to uh, labor histories across the uh, in transnational North American ways. Wow, thank you for sharing that. That's really interesting. And it's also interesting to see how your personal background and your movements and transitions relate to the things that you're interested in studying and all the intersections that you're researching. Absolutely. That movement <laughs> was, was essential uh, for that, for sure. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. So as many of us know, this podcast focuses on the kinds of transformations that are needed to shift society. And you, Jason, are a historian. So for you, what is the importance of studying history, especially in this context of politics and ecology, for creating a better world in the future? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, well, one, I think historians 
work in and and while i wear the that that title with with pride um i do i come from an environmental science and philosophical background and i i like i like to consider myself interdisciplinary and uh, i do think that's the best history today you know as it relates to studying politics and ecology and gender and race it it, it requires an interdisciplinary approach or angle and i'm, I'm grateful that in right now on this moment, most historians embrace that. So I, I work with I work in a lot of different archives in Mexico, and it's look and I'm, oftentimes when I'm working in the archives, for instance, the agrarian archive, I'm working alongside you know agrarian lawyers or you know farmers themselves, looking through documents to um, you know get um, to make legal arguments or make claims for their land. So I'm working in the documents, the public records, even the records that are written to the people by the state, right? But I'm also working in records that are written by the state and not completely, you know, not necessarily always taken into account, you know, everyone's perspective, right? And that's especially racialized and gendered, right? So as a historian, I go into the archive knowing that it's an uphill battle that I'm facing erasures and silences. So I think that the historian, it's historian, it's, it's creating narratives from a multitude of, of, of places realizing that um that the story will may never be told completely and that's something that is uh that is necessary i think in dealing with political and ecological battles because going forward especially when environmental justice is concerned going forward we need to have a res not necessarily a, re a reverence but a respect for what has happened before us you know uh, a respect for you know you know, let's say like, for instance, organic or sustainable agriculture, right? Or biological controls instead of pesticides in an agricultural setting. All of those ideas have, have come out, you know, in the 1890s, again in the 1920s, again in the 1960s, again in the 1980s, right? So it's, it's, it's seeing where they worked, where they failed, and what environments. It's kind of like today and today's moment. Um, when people are looking at abolitionism and defunding the police, um, you have a lot of new voices speaking up because there's this political opening. But history teaches us that, you know, most political openings are come at the tail end of long historical battles. So with abolition, Black women in particular have been studying the, the ways that this works and has, you know, doesn't work in in an assortment of different ways for decades, right? This for generation. Um, so to jump into this battle without paying a historical respect to the ways that people have thought about this in the past and what worked and what hasn't worked is how is a way that we will struggle building a better future, right? So and so to make a parallel to what we're dealing with today in the kind of the in the policing context, right? Similar with environmental justice, right? There have been people from Lewis Dobbs to Destiny Watford to Rachel Carson to, you know, and so many. So I think it's important for environmental justice in a similar context is to pay respect, or at least to know or be aware of the, the pioneers, right? Um, so we can, we can just do better, right? Um, moving forward. Yeah, thank you. And I noticed that you've been speaking a lot about environmental justice. Could you explain a little bit what that word means for some of us who might not know? Yeah, so environmental justice is oftentimes connected to environmental inequalities, 
um, instances where different populations get, uh, or different groups or different demographics get different resources. So let's let's say, for instance, uh, like a food desert. Um, and then, and then also you have issues of inequities as well, and that's also connected to things like food deserts as well, um, where you have systemic forms of inequalities that are tied to food consumption or exposure in an agricultural setting or exposure in an industrial setting or in a, in a residential setting in many cases. Um, I was recently talking to a very inspirational anthropologist who does a lot of work in Baltimore by the name of Nicole Fabricant. She's very close to a lot of the environmental justice movements in Southern Baltimore and Curtis Bay. And in Southern Baltimore and Curtis Bay, environmental justice means something in particular. It means asthma. It means I can't breathe in that way. It means being subjected to, you know, generations of toxins from the local uh, chemical companies and waste sewage factories. And now it's an ecological industrial park, but still um, because of the fight, the, the, a large of the fight of the community, um, they, they highlighted some of the injustices that they faced at a disproportionate uh, amount, be it pollution um, in the air or in the water or in the soil or in their, you know, in their homes, right? So environmental justice speaks to the, the political decisions that are being made oftentimes by, um, by political leaders, um, oftentimes by economic leaders or, you know, business folks that affect certain communities at the expense of others, right? And uh, environmental social justice speaks to the forms of resistance that combat that. And that's something that you see, you see a lot in many different ways in Mexico, um, but we can get into that uh, uh, maybe later. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing and explaining that to us. So now jumping back a little bit into history, in a recent article you wrote on arsenic as a pesticide in North America, you connected arsenic use with slavery. Could you elaborate a little more on that or where you were going with that article? Yeah, yeah. So I was suggesting that um, it's possible to map the increase of agrochemicals in the United States, agrochemical use in the United States, to abolition or the emancipation of enslaved labor. So if you consider agrochemicals like arsenics, which were the dominant pesticide at the time, um, if you consider them a labor-saving technology, um, then you can, you can, you can, kind of conceptualize why they would increase after an enslaved population is no longer accessible in the U.S. South. And in fact, if you look at um, how Southern planters of cotton in particular dealt with having to deal with um, cutting down new forests or, re you know, reinvigorating their land or killing pests or picking weeds, they looked to agrochemicals at an increasing rate starting in the late 1860s. South Carolina invests in phosphates. Georgia, I think, invests in um, phosphates as well. And by the 1880s, Baltimore and Maryland becomes the pesticide capital of the United States. Um, and the reason why I was writing is because a lot of that arsenic is being mined in Mexico 
um, by U.S. Uh, mining companies. Uh, the arsenic is a byproduct of the lead, zinc, copper, silver mining. And some of that arsenic is used for um, making glass and mirrors, but the, the 75% of it is actually made for using um, different type of chemicals, in particular calcium arsenate, which was really important for cotton um, at the turn of the century. And, um, and then also lead arsenate, which was really important for fruit. So yeah, I mean, there's a direct connection between the capital that was invested in agrochemicals in the wake of slavery to sustain that political economy. Um, and it also in very fascinating ways and a, 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 a new friend that uh, I'm, I'm having a pleasure working with and learning with uh, a geographer at Mississippi State by the name of Brian Williams. He looks directly at uh, the role of arsenic and its impact on black populations to this day. Um, he looks at it through the civil rights movement to this day and how um, different um, black farmers have mobilized against how fertilizers and pesticides have raised the cost of farming, how it's led them, you know, made them more susceptible to cancer, similar to Cancer Alley between Baton Rouge and New Orleans and Louisiana. But recently he, um, he showed me a 1924 USDA film about boll weevil, the, the, you know, the demonized uh, pest that came from Mexico and almost terrorized or ended um, cotton production in the U.S. South. He, he, he showed me this, one of the most amazing primary sources I've ever seen. It was uh, basically a 30-minute clip produced by the U.S. State Department, um, basically showing black farmers being drenched in arsenic as they as they um, sprayed cotton fields almost with their hands and at the end um, I, I don't want to give away too much because Brian's writing some amazing research on this and I just want to give him a shout out because his research is amazing but um, I do think that uh, that's from the wake of slavery through you know the interwar period to you know and even to this day pesticides starting with arsenic have um, adversely affected um, black populations in the in the Delta, particular um, in Mississippi, but across, as I mentioned, South Carolina, Georgia, Maryland, all invested in this. And the last thing I'll say is, is my own grandmother. Um, you know, when I put out something about our, uh, about pesticides, my own grandmother often remembers growing up on a truck farm in Maryland and using arsenics. Um, and it's it's been really amazing. Um, and and difficult, uh, you know, to to talk to my grandmother about these memories that she that she recalls when she reads about arsenic in Mexico. Uh, so that's been really interesting. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing that about your grandma. I think that it's important to recognize when we think about history, often these memories exist within the, our, our own families and this legacy trickles down or gets passed down generation by generation. So the work that you do is for me, it's very important, but it's also very personal because you can see how things that have happened in history centuries ago even still affect us today. And in that same article about arsenic, you also mention that over 100 pesticides that are now illegal in Europe are still permitted for use in Mexico. And this struck out to me particularly because it says a lot about how we value life in the global north versus in the global south. So what kind of movements have you studied in the global tropics that have sought to dismantle exploitative practices from the global north? Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a 
That's a difficult, that's a difficult question. Cause it's, it's, it's not, it's not always just an issue of like the global South versus the global North. In many cases, mm-hmm. the impact of the market in the global North affects I don't know. I guess I, so the classic example, I guess one of the classic examples raised by um, anthropologist um, Angus Wright what, it was that when DDT and other organochlorinates um, type of pesticide were, were slowly um, banned in the United States in the 1970s, they were banned for use in the United States. And these were called, they were banned for use because um, famously, Rachel Carson had highlighted them as persistent chemicals, right? And just because they're banned for use didn't necessarily mean they're banned for manufacture. So Angus Wright highlights that U.S. companies continue to manufacture these chemicals and sell them for use um, uh, in, 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 in various parts of uh, Mexico and Central America. And in many ways, that process still happens today. Um, but at the same time, uh, a lot of the resistance has come from uh, scientists and farmers themselves that have tried to either one, you know, create like biological controls and use less, you know, fertilizers, but also at the at the at the largest scale, have tried to create their own chemical industries to be less dependent on you know foreign chemical companies. But that doesn't necessarily mean that. Farmers in the countryside in Mexico are, are less exposed to harmful chemicals because in many cases, the domestic markets, because now they're creating um, they're you know, now now Mexican, you know, Mexican tomato growers in Sinaloa are being compelled to, you know, make sure that the, you know, the, the best tomatoes make it to Arizona and California. That means that the extra chemicals that are still in the country are oftentimes used at crazy amounts on tomatoes that are for domestic populations. A, his, um, uh, a scholar by the name of Ryan Gall has shown that in Costa Rica, you know, while Costa Rica is known for sending some of the best, you know, most organic and, you know, uh, fruits and vegetables bereft of uh, harmful chemicals, that the, the domestic market has some of the highest rates of pesticides in the world. So I, I just wanted to say, like, in the sense that, and the, the resistance exists on many different levels, you do see that and then I also want to at the at the at the state level in terms of you see you know uh, the Mexican government and the Costa Rican government trying to create their own their own uh, power in the conversation but also um, Latin America in particular is a difficult place to to voice um, to voice a disagreement against you know a resource extraction or a major uh, infrastructure project. I mean, in Mexico, since 2012, um, a recent report said that 86 activists have been murdered in Mexico. Uh, uh, 500 have been violently assaulted, but 86 have been murdered in the past eight years. I mean, just this year alone, Adan Dez Lira in Veracruz, um, Omeda Gomez uh, Gonzalez and uh, Raul um, Hernandez Romero as well, the advocates for butterflies in Michoacan. And I believe most recently in Morelos, um, Isaac Herrera was also um, assassinated. So people who speak out against, um, you know, the impact of foreign capital or the impact of domestic 
uh, power brokers and their control of land are oftentimes uh, victim to to violence themselves. I mean, and I, I guess I mean I guess drug cartels also um, who control land. Um, for both resource extraction and drug cultivation are also perpetrators of the violence against uh, resistance as well. So there's a lot of resistance in the sense that you have a lot of different communities have unionized to try to get some more control over, but a lot of it doesn't necessarily dismantle, you know, the racial agrarian capitalism that they're facing, right? Oftentimes it reinforces it when they're just trying to get a different types of control or more autonomy over the situation. Um, so oftentimes dismantling isn't what you see on the ground, right? It's this slow march towards getting a little bit more autonomy and sovereignty over the land and materials that you know best because they're around you. Um, but yeah, like I said, unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily look like dismantling all the time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I totally get what you mean, because at least for me, when I think of dismantling, at least in my head, I think of something that's immediate or something, yeah, something that's immediate, something that is changes from one day to the other. But I also think that there's something really important in these kind of, how would I say, in getting closer to the sovereignty and to this autonomy and I don't think that that should be looked past or absolutely no absolutely and I, I think I should also mention that in the in the United States there's a lot a long-standing tradition of environmental social justice against the the inequities um, that uh, different communities of color experience um, be it in rural or urban settings um, and in the U.S. South, this has increased even, even more, especially since Hurricane Katrina. Uh, you see movements uh, in Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama that are trying to, just like you said, do really valuable, meaningful, but gritty and frustrating uh, grinds towards these incremental but important uh, bits of sovereignty and autonomy in the, in the spaces around them, for sure. Yeah. I think it's also important to see how these movements are connected. That's why I'm really interested in your work because you study Mexico, but you also grew up in the U.S. and you're from the U.S. So you kind of see these intersections and these parallels between the regions. And a lot of times it isn't just this manufactured border that, that separates um, these movements. No, they're, they're connected and they intersect. And I think that that's really important to note. Absolutely. And um, speaking of movements, with everything going on in the past few weeks, black and brown stories and histories have been put in the limelight. More stories are coming out on how Western environmental movements have historically erased black and brown concerns and priorities. So as a black scholar, how have these recent events impacted you personally? And how do you think your work fits within this larger movement? Yeah. Um, so, so I guess I really feel like I can jump right into how my work fits in because I mean, I mean, it affects me personally just in the sense that um, having to deal with or having to face this situation right now in the United States. Um, while it's while it's really hopeful with everybody speaking about abolition and defunding the police. Um, it's, it's been really hard to do, deal with. I mean, obviously, I'm, uh, George Floyd was killed on my birthday, May 25th. I mean, that was, um, it's been a tough year. 
For sure. But uh, it hasn't necessarily changed my work. I mean, my work is, uh, it's, 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 it's among, I mean, I really feel so, I feel so blessed to be surrounded by so many scholars uh, that are doing similar uh, work or support my work. So I, I don't think like what I'm doing is exceptional in any way, but um, I, I do think that it is, it is rooted in trying to understand black and brown experiences through the realm of in the environment, right? So I do think that is increasingly an important way of ex- for to understand the marginalized experience um, now with the rise of the studies of indigenous geography, gender geography, black geographies, black ecologies. It's really exciting to see space and place used as a as a as as an analytical point to understand. Um, you know, struggles for freedom and, you know, ways that, you know, capital has been, capital logics have been used to disenfranchise and dispossess people, right? So my, my work doesn't necessarily become more about that now because it, it, it's, it's always been rooted in it, but it's exciting to get the attention that allows me to put um, things more into conversation, right? Um, it, you know, right now, I, I, you know, I've been talking about, you know, impunity and, you know, resources for quite some time, just because a lot of my work is building up to make the argument that a lot of the herbicidal warfare that is used to control communities and destroy drug cultivation in states like Guerrero and Sinaloa, that money that militarizes those spaces, that money that allows, you know, the military and policing elements to act with impunity um, could be much better used in, in, in those communities to, to build roads, to provide uh, good, uh, good prices for, you know, their local subsistence crops, um, better education, more sanitation. I mean, when the war on drugs first started in the 1940s, it was a socioeconomic conversation. How do we provide more resources to the communities? But now it's a conversation of how do we provide more resources to the military and the police, which is the same thing that we see in the war on drugs in the United States and how it affects black and brown communities, right? So, you know, a lot of the criminalization um, and the surveillance of uh, a lot of our communities. That that money, those millions and billions of dollars spent against us could be better spent to support us, right? And so it's a similar struggle, right? So not only is it asking conversations about production and consumption, right? Like, so I've talked about exposure and pesticides, but it's also, you know, with NAFTA, you know, it's, it's hard to not mention uh, Alicia Galvez's amazing work eating NAFTA, you know, looking at connections between food deserts and obesity and like how you know some towns in in southern mexico you know not only can you not get pepsi because coca-cola is so powerful but you can't get water right and you know and that obesity is a is a it's a it's a resource problem it's a distribution problem right um it's a problem that affects poor communities so just like the war on drugs is affecting poor communities the the effect that you know the crisis of agriculture and how that you know since nafta it also affected consumption patterns of people of color in southern Mexico and Central America, but also has had adverse effects on, you know, obesity and people of color in the United States as well. So it's, 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 so the work doesn't change. The work doesn't change, but it, it's exciting that I get to now have more conversations about um, the breadth of the work or where the work can connect to or where the work can grow, build, get better.
you know. So I, you know, as you said in the very beginning, I'm a PhD candidate. You know, I have nothing. I have you know everything to learn, right? Um, not, very little, very little expertise here. So um, it's exciting that I'm in a in that uh, I feel very comforted with the community around me um, to move forward and asking these questions um, with with uh, with more force. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, I love what you said about, I think we should all think this when we're in these spaces or when we're in these types of movements that, you know, we have everything to learn and there's so much that we've learned and there's so much that we can learn. And kind of jumping off of that, you've mentioned a, a few names of different people who've you've collaborated with or who've inspired you. Do you have any recommend recommendations for other writers or scholars who also work at this intersection of history, environment, race, and things like that? Yeah, well, um, you know, I'm in no control over anybody's time other than my own. So, you know, if, if, if you want to reach out to me, um, I, you know, I would be happy to, you know, ha have a conversation about any questions that anybody might have, you know, if they feel like, you know, I might be able to answer some. But um, I would just say generally, um, in the academic community, people studying environmental histories, people studying Mexican history, people studying black geographies and, you know, black studies and native studies in the U.S. and in Mexico. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, I think it's, it's very comforting that, uh, that there's a lot of good people doing it, you know, and that if you email 20 people, you're going to get 19 enthusiastic responses, right? Not everybody's going to have the time to, you know, talk to you right away, but, uh, I, I just think that, you know, take your, shoot your shot, you know, go out there, you know, trust yourself, ask, you know, you know, do the readings, be patient with yourself because, you know, especially, you know, just like what people are talking about with, you know, abolition work right now, like just because it's, just because it's morally sound and it's ethically, you know, succinct doesn't mean that it's not complex. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have layers. So be patient with yourself because these ideas take some time, right? Um, I've been working on this stuff for a long time. I got a reading and I'm about to jump into some more abolitionist texts and I'm going to be patient with myself because it might not come right away. Right. You know, so I think that, you know, stuff like that's really important, being patient with yourself, but then also using that, you know, humbling position to, you know, feel comfortable just, you know, you know, asking a question, knowing that being wrong isn't that isn't that bad. Right. Um, it's it's that's that's the door to, you know be less wrong in the future. So, um, like I said, I, I, this is kind of a, a, a kind of a lofty response and I'm, I, I think I could be more particular and answer any direct questions if anyone reaches out to me. And honestly, I feel like that's the reason why we have these types of, at least, or yeah, at least that's why graduate students have these types of conversations on, on podcasts is to, is to uh, yeah, just to, yeah, be open to learn and to teach, yeah, or to share. Thank you. And we like to ask this question a lot on the Ecosiv podcast. And you've already touched on it a little bit in our conversation, but what gives you hope? I guess in this current moment, I do actually do have some hope that we can take some resources that have been wasted on the perpetuation of surveilling black and brown people and criminalizing our actions and use that to uh, make our community stronger because we know they're strong. We, we're from there, you know, and uh, we get to, to get the support to show everybody else. And I'm excited about that. 
it's not going to be easy. So it, hope is the hope is a is a generous word, but uh, it definitely it's going to wake it's going to get me up tomorrow for sure. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And so, Jason, what's next for you? Or is there anything else you'd like to add for our audience? Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. What's next? Uh, there's a there's a lot coming up. There's a lot coming up. I'll just say that. I'm, I'm very lucky to be in a research group, research, um, I'm a research fellow for Noria, Mexico and Central America. And uh, it's 31 scholars, photographers, journalists from across the world. And uh, we study insecurity, violence and uh, social dynamics of change in Mexico and Central America. And I'm, um, I'm currently have the, uh, the uh, pleasure of um, uh, co-editing a series of articles with one of my favorite authors, uh, Alexander Vigna. And I'm pretty sure, fingers crossed, the first series of articles should be coming out um, in about a month, maybe a month and a half. So I'm really excited about the conversation that those might start because uh, it's, a, it's a nice chain of, chain of uh, consecutive pieces. So very excited about that. Oh, and they each piece kind of connects um, licit economies um, to illicit economies. So connecting avocados to opium or coconuts to marijuana or, you know, illegal uh, timber to another illicit trade. Uh, so it's really looking at a local agricultural uh, angle on, on illicit, illicit economies and just power um, in the countryside. Well, thank you so much, Jason. It was definitely a pleasure having you here. I think it's very important to bring up these topics, especially to recognize how history still ties into today's issues and how we can use the study of history to make a better future. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate your time and the invitation. <laughs>